Searching for killer asteroids from an African observatory, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. A Planetary Society Shoemaker Near-Earth Object Grant has, for the first time, gone to astronomers working from an observatory on the continent of Africa. We'll talk to one of its very successful amateur astronomers, Michelle Ori, in a few minutes. And later we'll learn about the first fairly disgusting meal ever enjoyed, if that's the word, in space. That and much more when we talk with Bruce Betts. First, though, a return visit by one of the little-known heroes of our search for near-Earth objects, or NEOs. Tim Spar ran the Minor Planet Center for many years. Now he is CEO of NEO Sciences, but still made time to chair the committee that judged this year's applicants for Shoemaker NEO grants. Among Tim's own discoveries are many NEOs, but also a moon of Saturn and a moon circling Jupiter. Tim, welcome back to Planetary Radio, and thank you once again for leading this work that has led to the award of a a whole new crop of uh, Shoemaker NEO grants. You're very welcome. Uh, First of all, it's great to be back here. Obviously, I love to chat about near-Earth asteroids and the people doing that research. And uh, in particular, I just really love the work that I'm doing for the Planetary Society. Let's talk a little bit about the, those uh, grant awardees this year. Uh, we've had many of these groups. Uh, what do you think of the current one? I mean, we'll be talking to one of your awardees, Michelle Ori, in uh, just a few minutes. I love this group of people, and I love the diversity. Uh, you know, it's a huge geographic diversity. So we've got uh, people in Serbia. We have our usual groups in the United States people in Australia, and people that are doing some work in Morocco. That's who you you spoke to recently. It's just a really nice distribution of things. And I think it also shows the international component to this whole effort. We are also very proud to uh, now have awardees who are based uh, in Africa, on the continent of Africa for the first time. Why is it so important that this is an international effort or should be? Probably the most important part of it from a discovery standpoint is having telescopes distributed around the Earth in longitude. And what this does is if someone finds something that you need follow-up on immediately, there are other facilities stationed around the world that can immediately point their telescopes there and observe it. And this will become more important as we find more objects that are uh, going to impact the Earth. Now, as somebody who's done a lot of observing and a lot of made a lot of discoveries yourself, how important is it for these almost as a rule, underfunded so-called amateur astronomers to be able to uh, do something with the money that they get from the society. I mean, to buy a new mount, to buy a new camera. I mean, the camera is pretty critical, isn't it? Yes. The, the camera is, is essential to this and the cameras are improving at an unbelievable rate. You know, I'm a bird photographer and 10 years ago, I couldn't take any good pictures at all. And now you just hand someone a camera and the cameras are just incredible. And that's the same revolution that's going on for uh, CCD cameras and even new detectors that they're putting in cameras for telescopes. It's really incredible. Are you talking about detectors that uh, are now going beyond CCD technology? Yeah, there are detectors called CMOS detectors, but also we have infrared detectors, which we'll probably talk about later for space-based systems. And this is just a huge leap forward in the ability to do this research. 
Yeah, I definitely want to come back to that. And it's interesting. I mean, this progress with the the cameras, you know, I've been hearing about this since well before we started this show over 15 years ago. They're still improving, you're saying, at, at a very fast rate. Yes. And some of what's happening is they're able to build larger chips that have the quality that the smaller chips had in the past, but they're also able to improve the quality of the larger chips at the same rate. It's it's astounding what happens is that you know suddenly you have this CCD chip that is big enough to cover most of the focal area of an optical system now that is flat all the way across with the same transmission all the way across. It's just astounding. And how important in this kind of situation is it not just to have a really big chip, but a chip with a, a really high density of pixels, a, a very high pixel count? Critically important for both the discovery work and follow-up work, but also in the work where you're trying to uh, measure the light curve variation of an asteroid. And so you want to have as many pixels as you can across that because you get effective counts of the photons that are coming in there. One of the things that's really important is they've built um, chips that actually collect the light more efficiently and they can collect more of it per exposure. So this just adds to the precision with which the measurements can be made. Another factor which uh, I've known about but was reinforced when I actually looked up the little camera that Michel Ori is uh, going to be able to uh, purchase or has purchased uh, with his grant is that it has such good cooling. And I know that's a, a really important factor, but why is that? Well, if you have detectors that are operating at room temperature, there's inherent noise in that system. Really, it comes down to what's called a dark current. But that's uh, sort of what's going on at, at the, uh, you know, if you never open the shutter, it's sort of what the noise is in the detector every few seconds. And if you cool that down, the dark current will actually go down. And so operating at these low temperatures, and by low temperatures, we're talking about minus 40 to minus 70 C. It's darn cold. Very cold, yeah. Let's move on to talking about the the structures that are in place globally to support the work of both professional and amateur astronomers who are doing this work. And of course, I bring that up because you, for so many years, ran the Minor Planet Center, which seems to be not just a clearinghouse, but I, I begin to get the impression as I talk to these astronomers, it's almost a center of, of community. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I think that's totally fair. And uh, we used to call it the nerve center for the asteroid community. Anyone in the world that does measurements of asteroids, be them positional measurements for asteroids and comets, so we determine the orbits, or now there uh, is even a, a light curve database that's associated with the Minor Planet Center and the Inter International Asteroid Warning Network there. So there's just so much work being done and all of it goes through there. I'm really glad that you mentioned that that group, the International Asteroid Warning Network, IAWN, which I, I first heard about you a year ago when we talked uh, for Asteroid Day in 2017. And you told me that it's commonly uh, called IWAN. <laughs> first of all, what is IWAN up to? And is that indicative of, of progress that's being made, not just to, uh, to discover and characterize these objects, but to begin to deal with or to prepare to deal with the one that uh, may be headed our way? First of all, definitely a resounding yes that Iwan is growing and there's more, there's really more interest in it now. For a little background, the United Nations General Assembly approved of the organization of the Iwan in 2013. It had been on the table for about a decade. 
you know, membership is open to people around the world that are doing uh, current work in discovery or follow up. There's also components for um, communication, etc. You know, one of the things I didn't talk about with our friends in Morocco, it's critically important to get other observatories around the world doing the work because then it spreads the word sort of like the gospel of asteroids <laughs> is being distributed around the world. And then people can go look and say, oh, the United Nations is actually interested in this problem. They've organized a little bit around it. And I think it just, it really does make a community out of the NEO people. And that necessarily means we will all be better at communicating in the process. Does this mean that you are uh, satisfied uh, with the progress that we're making uh, as we, you know, attempt to identify and, and track all of these objects, or at least as close as we can come to all of them that, that, that do pose a threat? Well, that for me, I'll, I'll answer that carefully. And I, I would quote my mom who said, you're doing great and you can always do better, Tim. <laughs> um, you know, as a scientist in this field, the group of people we have now are performing exceptionally well. If I went around to them and said, what would you do if you had more money? They would say, we would do more work. In a very diplomatic fashion, we are doing great and increased funding allows more surveys to be done. We completed the survey for the one kilometer and larger NEOs several years ago. On the heels of that, you know, we're suggested now to find all the 100 meter objects. And uh, with current technology, that will take an awfully long time. So we got a lot of work left to do. Um Regarding this progress, we just uh, had Lindley Johnson, the uh, planetary defense officer for NASA, back on the show. That was how we celebrated uh, Asteroid Week on Planetary Radio, along with Kelly Fast, also in the planetary defense office at NASA. And we talked a lot about this report that has just been issued uh, that was developed very collaboratively by a pretty amazing um, array, a spectrum of agencies across the uh, federal government here in the United States. Are, are you familiar with the report? Yes. How do you feel about that? Uh, is it another indication of good progress or did it say enough? Again, I have to be quite careful answering this because you have the, the giddy scientist who just wants everyone to throw more money at us so we can do more. <laughs> uh, sure. And so, yeah, the, the existing assets are doing a wonderful job. And to have a little more focus on this problem in terms of what is needed going forward, I think is always good. How far are we, do you think, from let's say tomorrow someone announces a good-sized object, something that uh, could take out a city, let's say, that is, uh, there's a decent chance it's going to meet up with our planet in, oh, let's say 10 years. Does that sound like a, a challenge, a threat that we are prepared to deal with? Yes. So something like that, that is 10 years out, I think we would have a reasonable chance at deflection. The reason I say reasonable is that uh, it can be difficult to launch missions quickly. The more lead time you have, the easier it is from a literally from a physics standpoint to deflect something because you know most of the asteroids have orbits of a few years. And so if you think of nudging it one time when it's very far out, maybe five orbits from impacting the Earth, it's not very hard to nudge it to have it miss the Earth in five revolutions. It's like compound interest. <laughs> Absolutely. That is a great analogy. I'm going to steal that from you now because Please that's do. perfect. Please do. Yeah. <laughs> Before I let you go, uh, what can you tell us again about uh, this, where you went from the Minor Planet Center, uh, starting up uh, this group, uh, Neosciences uh, Limited Partnership, that you are the CEO for? You told us last year 
that it's basically a consultancy and you've worked for NASA and some private clients, but what, what kind of work do you actually do? First of all, it's great to be your own employer. And I would encourage people if it works for them to try that. And uh, the most important thing is that if I don't like what my boss tells me to do, it's my fault at that point. So <laughs> right. um, yeah, I'm doing a lot of similar work that I did at the Minor Planet Center outside of the observation processing. I do a lot of really technical writing. I do work for the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I actually did some advocacy. I've got all sorts of things I can dabble in. It definitely keeps things interesting because I have two or three different projects going at once. Do this project, shift to this one later in the day, come back to the other one. Um, and I really love it. Does it feel good to have made this transition? I mean, maybe you miss making the discoveries yourself, but but now you are uh, playing a big part in making a lot of people around the world uh, aware of uh, of this challenge. Yes, I actually feel very good about that. I had worked at the Minor Planet Center for 15 years, and I'm probably more useful as a worldwide ambassador now than I was in that position. That's just my idea on it. Maybe that's not necessarily true, but that's the way I feel. And I think that helping push this field forward is very important. It's actually, I believe in the mission of protecting the Earth from asteroids, period. And so I'm doing whatever I can to push that mission forward. I got just one more thing for you, Tim. It's an invitation to uh, convey a message uh, to uh, any of this most recent group of uh, Shoemaker Neo Grant awardees that, uh, that might hear this program. Uh, well, I would say keep doing what you're doing because you're making us and the world proud. Well said. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for all you're doing and uh, for your great work uh, for several years now working with us on the Shoemaker Neo program. And uh, good luck getting the good word out as well. Thanks so much. It's an honor to be here. Take care. That's Tim Spar. We've talked with him several times before. He spent many years as the director of the Minor Planet Center, the sort of center for near-Earth object research uh, that is underway around the world. Now the CEO of Neosciences LLP, uh, one of the best-known people in the uh, near-Earth object community, something I think that we can all be very grateful for. Uh, he is also has served once again as the chair of the Shoemaker Neo Grant Review Committee for the Planetary Society. And those grants have been awarded, and that work is underway uh, with those uh, devices and other improvements made to observatories around the world. And we'll be talking to one of those recipients, Michelle Ori, in just a moment. This is Planetary Radio. There were seven winning proposals in this year's round of Shoemaker Near-Earth Object Grants awarded by the Planetary Society. Some went to veterans who have received support in previous years. Others went to impressive first-time applicants with observatories from California to Serbia. We talked with Australian awardee Julian Oe last March. Now we turn to the work underway at an observatory high atop a mountain in the northern African nation of Morocco. One of the leaders of that project, which also includes astronomers based in Morocco and France, is Switzerland's Michel Ori. Michel very kindly joined me online a few days ago, kind and somewhat courageous, considering that English is not his second, but his third language. Michel Ori, welcome to Planetary Radio, I should say bienvenue, and uh, congratulations on the uh, award of a Shoemaker Neo Grant. Where are you today? Are you in uh, at home in Switzerland or, or elsewhere? Yes, I am in Switzerland, in, uh, in Jura, in uh, Switzerland, North Switzerland. 
How often do you go to Morocco, to this mountaintop, where you have established this very successful observatory? Uh, usually, I go two two times a year in Morocco. My partner Claudine Riner go uh, most often because she is uh, she is the technician, and I am more the communications. Though so we are going over there in Morocco, two thousand kilometer away from here, maybe five times a year. Thank goodness today astronomers, amateur and otherwise, are able to do such wonderful work without actually having to be with the telescope. You you are able to do this work, for the most part, remotely from Switzerland. Yes, the, um, we have a low-cost uh, airplane that go from Basel here in uh, north of Switzerland to Marrakech. And Claudine and I uh, live near this airport and this, uh, near the, this low-coaster low airplane that go in two, uh, two hours in Marrakech. That's the, the, the good things. And the, the program is, uh, of course, important with our Moroccan team because they speak the, the second language and the language they speak in university is French. And we all speak French for this uh, project, uh, the most project. And uh, the seat of Ukaimdun, it's well studied with the um, university, Kadi Ayad of Marrakech. We, we uh, have a good seeing over there. They have spot the seeing more than 10 years over the Ukaimdun mountains. It is a, a beautiful complex of telescopes, observatories, that this uh, National Center of Scientific Research has, has created uh, there in Morocco. How was it that you and Claudine uh, were able to uh, partner with them to establish uh, your telescope, which uh, operates under this organization, which the two of you created, called MOSS, M-O-S-S, only you will be able to pronounce this correctly as we speak, but uh, it's the Moroccan Ukamidan Sky Survey, and I'm sure I did not pronounce that correctly. Yes, it's, it's quite okay, Morocco Ukamidan Sky Survey. The beginning of the project is, uh, I, my first wife was, uh, came from Morocco, and I was there each summer, and I have uh, made in 2007 the, the, a trip tour of Moroccan astronomy. And I met uh, 10 years ago Professor Zouer Ben Khaldun in uh, University Kadi Ayad. And he told me that he wants to make an observatory, a professional observatory in Ukaimdun, in a summit where they have made some experience uh, with the sun on the atmosphere. In Switzerland, I tracked the asteroid uh, from 2000. And we all say that we need to have a telescope in a region that have a, a most clear night. Here we have maybe uh, 80 uh, clear nights a year. And in Morocco, in the Ukainan summit, we have four times that. I proposed to Claudine in 2011 
to pick up telescope that was in Sousse of France and to install that in uh, Camden Summit and to make this project, the most project, Morocco Camden Sky Survey. Professor Ben Khaldun is very um, interesting about this project. Since this project is established, we have in the beginning two uh, domes in the summit, and now we have uh, six domes in the summit. Very impressive. And, and uh, I will refer uh, anyone listening to an excellent uh, blog post at planetary.org by my, by my colleague Jason Davis on July 3rd of this year. It is an excellent, it provides much more information than we will be able to get to, including some images of the observatory, a, a beautiful video actually, uh, must have been taken by a drone. And there uh, is a, a, the good photos side by side of uh, you and uh, Professor Ben Khaldun, uh, the director of the observatory, as you mentioned. In the beginning of the project, we uh, have um, said uh, that we have, for Claudine and I, five nights of observing for the asteroid, and the Moroccan had the two of the night to observe what they want. But in the following of the project, we see that we are very powerful, Claudine and I, with the detection of asteroids. And Ben Khaldun said that our scope is definitely used for checking and uh, searching uh, comets and asteroids. So uh, Claudine um, uh, sees the sky from here with remote mode four days a week, and I have the three days a week. So it sounds like it has been a good partnership uh, working with Professor Ben Khaldun and the other scientists uh, who are based in Morocco. When we installed the, the dome in Camden, the dome come from uh, United uh, America. And uh, when we installed the dome, the Moroccan installed a, a dome too, next to our, and they have also a scope and they um, make observation of uh, special stars. They do in the same time with two scope in the same uh, month. They make photometry of stars, special star, and um, um, photometry and um, spectroscopy. That's their specialty. So they make long-term observation of stars and we make our project of uh, small, small bodies of solar systems. Usually, we make observation together for special subjects. For example, when the asteroid and dormant comet Phaeton go close to the Earth, we do together observation with spectral and photometry with two scope, their scope and our scope. So this is quite a partnership. I read in Jason's article that you have spent more than a thousand nights uh, using the telescopes looking for these near-Earth objects and other asteroids and comets. Four or five hours each night, so many so-called amateur astronomers show such dedication, and you are obviously one of these because uh, then you go and you teach high school there uh, in Switzerland. 
the article of Jason is is not quite exact. Oh, I, oh please, I, no, set us no, straight. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Here in Switzerland, we have created an, uh, an observatory with some of my colleagues here in Switzerland, in the north of part of Switzerland. And in this uh, observatory, we have installed a 60 centimeter scope. It's quite a big scope for amateur astronomer. And with that scope, I have uh, searched the asteroids more than 600 nights in 10 years. One day each six days. That's I see. The, the, what we can do here in North Switzerland. Since 2011, we have observed more than 1,200 nights. Mm, that's very impressive. <laughs> Especially knowing, uh, since my wife is also a teacher, what it takes to also be able to uh, spend your day with young people. Let me ask you about the Shoemaker Neo grant that you received and how it was used. I read uh, that it was uh, you used it to purchase a, a much better camera. Yes, the, the old camera is a big one, and the new one is a big one too, but with a more uh, large and a more sensitive detector. Uh, the main thing is we have field of view upgrade with 15%. The download frame, the full da frame download is more quickly. This new camera is cooling better and have low nodes in the reading. And we'll put up a link to the actual description of this camera. I think it's quite fascinating, even though I am not nearly the astronomer that uh, that uh, you folks are. Obviously, this is going to help you with your work, but you've had pretty good success already. How many comets and asteroids, near-Earth objects, has uh, Moss discovered? The Moss have discovered uh, five comets and uh, six nearest objects um, near asteroids. We say usually that we uh, it's more difficult to to check a comet than to pick up a nearest object, an asteroid. But we have discovered with most project quite the same number of comets as of nearest objects. The reason is that the time of our uh, images is quite long. It's the necessity to reach the magnitude that is uh, necessary for such discovery. We make uh, long exposure time, quite long exposure time, not 10 seconds or 20 seconds like the big survey. We make more than one minute, usually two minutes, and we detect more easily quite low object, but not very fast object. And the, um, the near-Earth object is quite the, the most rapid object in the sky. So we, we detect not the, the quickly object, but the, the objects that are quite uh, low, but more rapid than uh, main belt object, of course. Do you concentrate on discovering objects that have not been seen before? Or do you also do some of the follow-up work uh, tracking asteroids and comets that have been discovered by others? Ukaimdon is not in Arizona or Kansas. Uh, Ukaimdon is in uh, Africa, 
near the, the summit, we don't have any city. The data rate from uh, Ukamden to here is very, very low. So we must mm. uh, observe with scripts. It's not possible to upload and to, um, to upload images of uh, Ukamden here in my computer to assemble the images and to detect a very faint nearest object to be follow up like all the emitter make in uh, all the worlds. Because if you will track and stack the asteroid, you must have a quick liaison, not a very low rate data. I see. Well, uh, certainly this record of discovery of objects that no one has ever seen before is uh, plenty of justification for the work that you're doing. I wonder, are your students aware of your your successes as a discoverer of uh, of objects in the solar system? Uh, do, are they excited to hear about your work? Here in uh, my small region, I was well known. My person is linked to the astronomy because I have discovered here in uh, my region a comet, the 305 Ori comet. The comet now has my name. I have uh, discovered this comet here in Switzerland in 2008. And since that, I was um, Mr. Mr. Comet or Mr. Asteroid <laughs> or Mr. Astronomy here in my region. Okay. That's wonderful. So I studied physics in uh, high school. And when I discovered this comet in 2008, during one week, I speak about Comet with all my classes. Uh, often, my uh, students tell me, can you please <laughs> speak us about your discovery, your comets, your asteroids? <laughs> and I speak, uh, of course, um, with great satisfaction about uh, these discoveries because uh, I have named 100 minor planets and uh, for me, it's important to make education about that because uh, great extinctions have been made with uh, great impact with asteroids. In this environment, I think it's less person that speak about this problem here in Switzerland. Well, then I have another reason to thank you for this work because uh, in addition to making these discoveries, you are sharing them. Uh, that is something that uh, at the Planetary Society we feel very strongly about. As our boss said, we, we like to share the passion, beauty, and joy of space exploration. And it, it sounds like you are certainly doing that. Maybe next year, the university will make um, a high-speed uh, internet uh, data system, maybe. And Excellent. Ma and... Uh, if we have this high-trade data system, we can make uh, other things than just searching all night, <laughs> each night after each night, detecting some small uh, object, uh, near-Earth object. I hope to make that until the big, the big survey, the very big survey will be established. So after that, I think it's not more possible to, to discover the RSST and some other big project uh, will uh, end uh, 
the era, the amateur era of uh, discovery of asteroids. But I think we have more one, two or three years to pick up some objects. Well, we will wish you the greatest of continued success. And uh, it is good to know that uh, that new camera that uh, you got with your Shoemaker Neo Grant will be assisting you and your, your partner, uh, Claudine René, uh, in this work. Please tell her as well that we are very grateful and mm -hmm. uh, you both have our congratulations and, and best wishes. Thank you very much. And I hope that uh, this prize and uh, the, the, the reconnaissance with the American community of asteroids will permit to the Morocco uh, team in, um, in Marrakech to upgrade and to be well-known more away than just in Morocco. <laughs> Professor Ben Khaldun and his team make great efforts, but they have less money And it's important that the project and what they do over there in Camden Summit is well known and uh, to progress and to have a well-established reconnaissance. And I think the, the, the Neo Grant is fine for that. Time for What's Up with Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. He is uh, being a chief scientist this week because he is up at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. What's going on up there? Hi, we're uh, having a mission readiness review for LightSail 2. Going through the details and make sure we understand the spacecraft and the flight rules, etc. Uh, with our launch currently scheduled for no earlier than October 30th of this year. That's today and then tomorrow we'll have an operational readiness test and or or or. <laughs> And uh, in that case, we will use the, the so-called BenchSat, the simulated spacecraft, to go through key uh, operational points. Basically, it's a practice. It's a run-through for when we're in flight. I was wondering if BenchSat would be involved. And, and that's where you, you treat the BenchSat, so-called, as a, the real bird, right? You, you, they do telemetry from it and so on? Yeah, exactly. So it's uh, got a flight computer. It's got the same software on board. It's got either the actual hardware or simulations of it. And so it's the, the practice test article. Best of luck with that. And uh, now people know why you sound like you're in a hotel room in central uh, California, because you are. <laughs> could, you, could you tell that sound? <laughs> Obviously. Uh, how's the night sky up there? It's usually cloudy. Actually, it was clear and beautiful last night. I saw uh, in the early evening in the west, I saw Venus hanging out in this case near the moon, but the, the moon will do its pesky moving away thing. But super bright Venus in the early evening low in the west, and then you can go across the sky to Jupiter looking really, really bright, and then Saturn, and then Mars rising uh After sunset, but it's still in the early evening, and Mars is, of course, approaching its opposition, opposite side of the Earth from the Sun, on July 27th, closest approach on July 31st. In a few days, I'll have a blog all about uh, watching Mars, as well as 
On July 27th, same day as Mars opposition, there's a total lunar eclipse, which is visible from throughout most of Europe, Africa, Western and Central Asia, the Indian Ocean, and Western Australia. And so if you are in one of those places on the 27th, you can actually see reddish Mars very close to reddish eclipsed moon. And then also we've got uh, the moon hanging out near as it moves across the sky. It hangs out near Jupiter on the 20th, Saturn on the 24th. And then, as I mentioned, Mars on the 27th. If you don't see the total eclipse, you'll still see a full moon near Mars. Whew. Yeah, I know. It's still a very busy sky. Let me take you back, unprofessional that I am, because I should have asked <laughs> you to tell people how they can learn more about uh, about LightSail, about all that's going on. Sail.planetary.org. Go uh, check out our website and learn uh, learn about it. Jason Davis, who's covering it on a regular basis for us, will have a blog about today's meetings in the next uh, few days. Okay, on to this week in space history. It was 49 years ago that humans first walked on the moon. Dun, dun, dun. One year to go to the 50th anniversary. In 1976, Viking 1 landed on Mars. We move on to random space. <laughs> that was eclectic. Apollo 11 was the second all-veteran multi-person crew on an American mission, the first being that of Apollo 10. So all of Apollo 10 and Apollo 11 astronauts were veterans of spaceflight. Guys who knew what they were doing. Apparently. All right, we move on to the trivia contest. Speaking of guys in space, what did Yuri Gagarin eat in space? How do we do, Matt? Ick. <laughs> Bleh. <laughs> <laughs> we did terribly or his food was terrible? I just feel sorry for the guy after all that he had to go through, but uh, he did get to be the first human in space, so I, I guess the worst things could have happened. I'm going to go straight to the person chosen by random.org as our winner this week. Some people guess that he wasn't long uh, up there long enough to eat, but actually what I read is that the Russians, uh, the Soviets at the time, wanted him to eat just so that they could see if he would choke to death because no one knew if you could eat in space <laughs> other than, you know, the, the dog biscuits they had given to Laika and so on. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> um, here he is. It's George Stefan, one of our listeners in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. He said, on the 12th of April in 1962, Yuri Gagarin had a fabulous meal of beef and liver completed with a nice chocolate sauce, all served out of tubes. Yummy. Mm, tasty and so good for you. And I take it that's a that's a tasty and correct answer. It's a tasty and correct answer. Wow. George, congratulations. You are our winner this week, which means we will be uh, finding out what size Planetary Radio t-shirt you'd like, and you're also going to get one of those 200-point itelescope.net astronomy accounts from the worldwide network called the iTelescope a nonprofit network that you can use to, to do a great astronomy anywhere. I'm going to start out. We usually save them for last, but here is what Dave Fairchild, our poet laureate, sent. It wasn't quite the haute cuisine Parisians find divine, and nothing like a creme brulee or ruby rosé wine. Instead, Yuri Gagarin, when the time arrived to eat, was snacking on the pudding and some tubes of pureed meat. <laughs> That's what I had for breakfast this morning. Oh, lucky you. Free breakfast at that hotel, huh? Yeah. It is. You just grab the tubes and head to your room. <laughs> Throw in a little uh, dried uh, space ice cream and you got it made. 
I'm still trying to get the bacon out of the tube. We got more. It gets even better. Brian Mangold, Maricopa, Arizona. The food was terrible. The service stank. The location had no atmosphere, but the view made up for it all. Ah. <laughs> I know. I know. Pretty good. Dominic Turley, in the same vein, Saskatoon, uh, Saskatchewan is where he wrote to us from. He said, honestly, I'd rather burn up on reentry than eat that. Oh. Jeff Sosby, I love this one. He's in Sacramento, thus setting the standard for in-flight meals for decades to come. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, a a random space fact from Clem Unger. Whilst Yuri can claim to have had the first bite in space, his successor on Vostok 2, German Titov, had the honors of being the first to be space sick and lose his lunch in space. Quite an honor. Yes, I'm pretty sure I've discussed that in Random Space Fact Land before. Or in trivia. I think it was a trivia question. Who was the first person to hurl in space? Oh, I think you're right. I I do think that came up. Anyway, that came to us from Clem in Mornington, Australia, where we have many listeners who are anxiously awaiting your question uh, that is part of the new contest. (laughs) All right. After Apollo 11... What was the next U.S. mission to fly an all-veteran crew? In other words, an entire crew who had all flown in space before. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. You have until the 25th. That would be July 25 at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us the answer this time. And win yourself a Planetary Radio t-shirt. Also, a 200-point itelescope.net astronomy account. Thank you. Uh, As I said, I hope it goes great up there and uh, looking forward to the launch. Thank you. Uh, Me too. And uh, I also want on a different topic to, one, thank Tim Sparr and all of our review panel from Shoemaker Neo Grants. Uh, Tim's a great guy who helps us get it done. Also remind people there's a cool Kickstarter going on right now with Planetary Defense Products, Kick Asteroid, with a great poster from Thomas Romer of Chop Shop. And so you can go to Kickstarter, search for Asteroid if you're interested in checking it out. Excellent. And there's some some fun video stuff there as well uh, with with our boss, Bill Nye. Thank you for that. Uh, I'll talk to you next week. All right, everybody go out there, look up the night sky, and think about what you would shove into a tube to eat in space. Thank you, and good night. I think I'll reserve my tubes in space for toothpaste. That's Bruce Betts. He's the chief scientist for the Planetary Society, who joins us every week here for What's Up? Actually, the chocolate sauce doesn't sound so bad. (laughs) Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its watchful members. Mary Liz Bender is our associate producer. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. I'm Matt Kaplan, at Astro. Astro.